I was astounded when I learned the numbers of Black women living with and being diagnosed uh, with HIV. And I was astounded, not because I didn't think that someone could be infected in any space, but because it is so silent. It's so silent. It is so silent. We don't talk about it. I wish we talked about it at the dinner table. I mean, you know, we, we don't sit around the dinner table as much as we used to, but maybe at Thanksgiving, we're, we're talking about it, that we normalize it like other diseases and that we, you know, we stop putting, get rid of that stigma around it, get rid of the stereotype. And, and so, you know, the stereotypes continue to exist because of that silence, right? I'm Anika Noni Rose, and this is Being Seen, an in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on Black women, Being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. are often taking care of others, sometimes at the expense of ourselves, frequently without realizing that within systems of care, like health, those who treat us should work for us, work with us. They should care for us in ways that promote our agency and empower us. And part of receiving the best care, the care we deserve, is ensuring that Black women are present in all the rooms from the doctor's office to clinical trials. Our representation in these spaces ensures that they are designed with us in mind, that they are specific to our bodies, to our experiences, and that they prioritize meeting our needs. We deserve that kind of care. This is something that Didi Chambly, the executive director and founder of La Gender Inc., has been championing and advocating for, for decades. She has insisted that Black trans women be seen, recognized, and prioritized. So it made you feel like you was uh, not, you felt not human. People, people put you in the category of not even being human. And then when I st- uh, started uh, advocacy and, and advocating for, for services for people like me, I, I couldn't get those services because they said there was no data to substantiate that I even existed. Mm. So uh, there was, I didn't even exist nowhere, so they didn't want to hear anything I had to say about my people, uh, my community suffering the way we were. Uh, The infection, HIV infection rate for black trans women was 85% back during that day. That was like an annihilation of a whole community of people. 
um, and they were not uh, uh, giving us the services we needed. And they wanted to uh, include us in um, a population that did not represent us. They wanted to put us in a population that is termed men that have sex with men. And we are not men that have sex with men, and our needs are totally different. Mm. We are women, and we have different needs than men that have sex with men. So um, that whole bring tears still to my eyes to how people uh, treated me during that time when I would walk into the Ryan White Council and the whole room would turn around and look at me like, what are you doing here? A man in a dress. We don't want to hear what you have to say. You know? And I did not... I did not let that stop me, but I, I had to find a way to, to conquer that that main uh, barrier to me getting in there and getting the services that my community needed. So uh, Spirit just come to me and say, you go in there first thing in the morning. You be the first one there. You meet and you greet every person that come in that room. And you give them a genuine compliment. Don't be a phony about it. Be genuine. Give them a compliment or something that you like about them and greet them as they come in into the meeting room. So by the time everybody got in the meeting room, I had met everybody. Hmm. So when I got, when my turn came to speak, I had worn the room already. So that was my key. What comes from us having power? How does the way in which we are represented in the room change how we are cared for? Dr. Kimberly Smith is a researcher, physician, community leader, and advocate who has prioritized caring for people living with HIV for decades. She is currently the head of research and development for Vive Healthcare. Now, you've spoken uh, in other interviews about your pride in Vive being majority led by women, which was a real surprise for me and a positive surprise. And especially when I saw several women of color, I was like, what? This is fantastic. Um, as we know, over 260,000 of those living with HIV in America are women. And 42% of those living with HIV in the world are women. What do you think we gain from having women leading the charge in research, development, and strategic decision-making around HIV treatment and prevention? And this is a simple, you know, question, but it's good for people to hear this because I think that people don't think that having a woman in a position is a positive, that having a Black woman a Latin woman, an Asian woman in a space is something that's going to assist mm-hmm. the the world in any particular way. So talk to me about that. You know, so actually the number 
when you think about the world, it's actually more than half of the people in the world living with HIV are women. And now here in the U.S. is more like 20, 20, somewhere between 20 and 25 percent. But in the world, it's more than half. Women have a unique experience living with HIV. They have unique vulnerabilities uh, from HIV and to acquiring HIV, all of those dynamics and in relationships that we talked about. I do believe that, you know, I'm biased, of course, but I do believe that women have a a, a particular bent towards empathy and, and wanting to, um, you know, address the world in a way that, that allows women to be seen, allows children to be seen. You know, we've talked about uh, the communities that are impacted disproportionately, trans women, men who have sex with men, just women understanding what it is to be discriminated against, to be limited, to be, you know, all of the things that put us to the side. I think that creates a different level of empathy. That's my belief. You know, I've always said that if if we had more uh, women leaders around the world, we'd have fewer wars. Mm. We'd have, you know, folks talking it out, figuring out how we can avoid the 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 horror that comes with war. And 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 I believe that in the in the in the boardroom and you know in planning uh, whichever war you're going against, you need to have people who understand what it means to have to actually have to fight your way into the room, to, to fight your way up the ladder, to, to not be handed uh, opportunities. And so I, I'm very proud of the fact that Vive is a different kind of organization that has prioritized having women leaders. That was what drew me to the organization to begin with, that it, it was different, you know, that it was going to be 100% focused on HIV. And, you know, with a mission that says we leave no patient living with HIV behind. And and so that that was sort of just you know I my whole career has been focused on HIV. It was easy for this to be the right place to come. And then I got to come somewhere where when I you know when I said when I complained and said we we must make our studies representative and that we must make sure that we have women in our studies. We must make sure that our studies are diverse. Nobody fought me. Nobody stopped me. They didn't ask me, well, how much more is that going to cost? Or how much more time is that going to cost us? They, they had my back and said, yep, that's the right thing to do. You go ahead. Go ahead. Do it, Kim. Seeing ourselves in the room, recognizing each other, the power of finding our community and being loved back to loving ourselves. To meet people in and and call them out on their stuff that do you know what you're actually doing? Do you know what you're actually doing? And you know how many years we had to tell these bald-headed white men up there in the CDC that we're not men that have sex with men. How many times we had to tell them that over and over and over again before they got it? <laughs> you know? And we was doing this. I mean, I, we had our first consultation here in Atlanta in 2004. 
The CDC brought trans people from all over the country here for a convening. That was the first time we had saw each other. Mm. That was the first time we knew each other existed. That even, you know, we thinking we all in this fight alone. We the only one fight here. But, you know, that that opened our eyes to let us know that, you know, our sisters and brothers are fighting all across the country. You know, and having the same issues that we are having. So, yeah, the um, uh, uh, places like Common Ground, uh, which Common Ground was a place that was for people that had HIV, and um, they took us on trips and they uh, introduced us to all different kinds of spiritual uh, practices of how to heal ourselves uh, with Reiki and all different kinds of meditation and healing. Because I needed healing, you know, from the things that I was doing to myself Mm. at the time in the life that I was living. I needed healing. And I needed love because I wasn't loving myself. Mm. And they loved me back to loving myself again. Loving ourselves, knowing our worth, putting ourselves first, the taking care and the role of the caretaker. When Black women are present in our health care, clinical trials, and the way Black women's representation literally saves our lives. You know what? I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I, you know, I encourage it from, you know, every everybody that's out there taking care of patients is, you know, just relate to the person that's in front of you as a person first uh, and, and, and realize what they're going through. Because in many cases, they, you know, they had to build up the courage to actually come to see me and talk to me about this. Mm. And, you know, after a while, most of most of those relationships became good relationships. We became good girlfriends because, you know, that's the place where they could come and talk about whatever. Mm. Most of the time, if things went well and we got them on medicines and they were doing well from a medical standpoint, we talk about what else was going on in their lives. And often what else was going on in their lives was exactly what you said. They're taking care of everybody else. They are taking care of the kids. They're taking care of a partner. They're taking care of parents. They're taking care of everybody else. And so it's re- my job was reminding them that, that they didn't do anything wrong, that they deserved to be liked, to, to have a good life, and that they were worthy of love. They were worthy of happiness. They were they were worthy of good health care and medications. And, and just, again, they're worthy of spending some time on themselves and everything can't be about, you know, you taking care of everybody else. And because of you, not only are they worthy, they're able to have these things. Because one of the lesser known but critical areas where a lack of representation can have a significant impact on health is in clinical trial diversity. 
a space where you fought very hard. Can you talk a little bit about that broadly for people who don't understand why it's important, but also specifically why it is critical for Black women? Yeah, you know, we have to be represented in the trials in order for them to tell us information we need to know about us, right? So, you know, if we have a medicine that gets studied in all men, all white men, for the most part, uh, then whatever comes out of that will be information that's good for white men, but is it good for everybody else? Is there going to be a side effect or some challenge to that medicine that would impact women differently than it would men? We'll never know that if we're not a part of the trial. And in the early days of HIV, actually being a part of a trial is how you got access to the medicines that were going to save your life. I mean, one of the things that actually doesn't get talked about that much when we talk about, you know, uh, Magic Johnson, who's probably one of the most famous people living with HIV, was that Magic, when he first got on medicines, he was a part of a clinical trial. Uh, And that's what allowed him to, you know, get to, you know, the the best medicine, some of the best doctors. and, And, you know, that contribution that he made Uh, was critically important because he was willing to give himself to that trial to be able to advance that drug. But it also was a benefit to him in that he, you know, he got to have access to the -the state-of-the-art medicines. And, 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 you know, I'm always, from the time, I've been in industry now for almost eight years, 20 years prior to that, or the, the 20 years that preceded that, I was treating patients and doing clinical research. And back then I was fighting to make sure that the trials were representing us, that we were a part of it, that you could see people of color in those trials. And some of the notion that has been out there is that we were unwilling, that we were unwilling to be a part of clinical trials. And so no one asked. I can't tell you how many times People have told me, well, you know, I didn't even bother because I knew that, you know, he's African-American and he would not consider being in a trial because of medical mistrust and all of that. And so then that whole medical mistrust thing, which is a real phenomenon, but it, it, it becomes an excuse for not actually approaching people of color, Black folks in particular, about clinical trials. Because if you ask folks, you know, I, I've done exactly that study ask folks, you know, have you ever participated in a clinical trial? Most of the time, the answer is no. And then you ask, well, were you ever asked? And the answer was no. And then you ask the flip question for people that are in clinical trials, what, you've been in this clinical trial, was it a good experience? Most of the time it was. In some ways, living with HIV looks different for everyone. Aisha Scott, activist, and educator. It was by mistake that I actually found out I was fighting with a girl over a boy. And we had to go into the director's office and in her office she had different weeks listed. And those weeks listed HIV, like sickle cell, some other things. And the week that I was there, it fell under the HIV. So before she could even say anything she wanted to talk about, I was just like, wait a minute, I'm like, why am I here if it says HIV? And 
that's really how I found out. And I, it was it's kind of odd that I guess I never put two and two together because I traveled with my doctor's office. I guess I, I thought that was normal, <laughs> traveling with your doctor. But um, yeah, by the director of the camp, she ended up going out and finding my doctor. My doctor called my grandmother because she had to ask her first before she could let me know. And then she came into the room and pretty much explained it to me there. She drew some pictures for me and showed me like some cells and tried to just give me a picture of what was going on inside of my body. But I definitely didn't learn how other people learned. I didn't get it directly from, you know, my parents' mouth or my caregiver's mouth, rather. I had to just kind of stumble on the information my own, on my own. The importance of not conditioning how we care for someone else or determine their worthiness for love. When I actually wrote that blog, you know, I was in a really, I, I guess, weird place. And I keep saying odd and weird. But I didn't want to go against the campaign because I love it so much. So let's make that clear. I, I do think it's a good thing. The only concern that I have is that there are people that I know and even myself who aren't, who aren't always undetectable. And we see this messaging and we've seen comments and there was a discussion about some of the comments around, you know, dating and only dating people that are undetectable. And for me, you know... I had a conversation with a friend and I said, you know, I'm not always undetectable. I have blips or sometimes I get in these little ruts where I take med vacations and I know I'm not undetectable. I know my virus is detectable because the next time I go to get labs, I'm in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands as far as my viral load. So it's like, is that the only time that I am supposed to be or feel good about myself? And those are choices I'm making. You know, those are, there are people that don't have a choice. They're, they just cannot get undetectable or they may take some time at getting undetectable or, they, or they're newly diagnosed. So it makes me just step back and think about you equals you and what that means. And just making sure people understand that, yes, you equals you is a really good thing. And that's a personal victory, you know, for people living with HIV. But it shouldn't be a measure for someone's, you know, decision to date you or, you know, um, how they treat you. Even if you're having sex, because technically, if you're with somebody and they're undetectable today, they may not be undetectable tomorrow. Some people don't get labs, you know, every three months or frequently. Some people get them every six months. Some people don't go to the doctor often at all. So how do you really know what somebody's, um, you know, viral load is? So it's just taking those things into account and those people who aren't undetectable, who have feelings about that messaging. And even myself, I guess even when I 
even wrote that, it was because, you know, I just think about how I deal with my own HIV or how I have dealt with it in the past. And um, yeah, I just don't want people left out or feeling, you know, like there's some sort of divide or separation. Like this is the good bunch and, you know, this is the bad bunch. And that's how when you look at the comments and how people measure those living with HIV, sometimes it can can feel that way. So what I take from that is clearly you're not saying that being undetectable is a bad thing. What you're saying is the status of undetectable should not be the measure of someone's humanity or worthiness for love. How can we care for ourselves differently? What do we need to know? What do you think needs to change? about the way that we talk about HIV and the strategies we use to combat it in order to move the needle with women. If you could tell every Black woman in America one thing about HIV and HIV prevention, what would it be? So um, if I could tell every Black woman uh, one thing about HIV, it would be that It's not about who you are that makes you vulnerable to HIV. It's about what you do, right? So, you know, you're not vulnerable because you're a Black woman. You're vulnerable because you are, you had exposure to someone who was infected. Mm. But so the, the notion that it was out there in the beginning, you remember the days when folks said, oh, you had to be a sex worker or you had to be promiscuous or you had to be a drug user. You had to be, you had to be X. Mm. You don't have to be anything. You have to be, as I said earlier, unlucky. I mean, the, the, the women that I've taken care of, women and men that I've taken care of who are living with HIV have come from every walk of life, from uh, CEOs, school teachers, principals, bankers, you name it, doctors, all the whole the whole gamut. And it wasn't because of who they were, it was that they happened to come in in sexual contact with someone who was HIV infected. So, you know, they don't need to be blaming themselves. They need to be uh you know, if if you're negative, you need to be protecting yourself. And so there are more ways now to protect yourself than there used to be. And, you know, there was in the past, there was basically condoms and that was it. Now there's the ability to uh, protect yourself with, with something called PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, where you take a medicine to make yourself uh, less vulnerable to acquiring HIV. That, it, that can be, I think, empowering for women. You know, that it, it's not necessarily always going to be about negotiating the condom, that you get to decide if you want to protect yourself and that, that in the privacy of your home, you, you're taking that medicine. Um, so so my that was a long one word, but the mm-hmm. main point was, that, you know, don't assume that you're not vulnerable and, you know, make sure that you understand how you can minimize your vulnerability and, if you do that, then you'll be able to, to, you know, to avoid HIV. But on the flip side, to talk to my sisters who are infected, 
and who have already who are living with HIV. That again comes back to you're worthy. You you can live a normal, healthy life. You're worthy of taking the time to take care of yourself. There are medicines that can make you live a lifespan that is no different than what you would live if you didn't have HIV. Um, that you know you you're worthy, and so you know that would be my message that I would carry to you know my sisters that are living with HIV and those that are not and and want to uh, remain uh, not living with it. The way that we care for ourselves changes us, but also changes things for others. For me, my greatest hope is that people living with HIV learn to love themselves first. I think the more we love ourselves, the more we empower ourselves. And that's not just, you know, screaming our status or being this public advocate, but it's just about personally feeling and understanding and knowing that you are great and in spite of this diagnosis, you are still human and you have one life to live and you deserve to enjoy that life and you should require people to love you, you know, publicly, privately and treat you the way that you treat them. And for, I mean, the rest of the world, I feel like the more we as people living with HIV can, you know, stand in our truths, even for the people closest to us, I think that's what'll make the difference in how people view HIV and how people see people living with HIV. I tell people all the time when I'm doing dating and disclosure trainings, you know, be mindful of how you share your status. Be mindful of how you disclose your status. If you if you're crying about it, how do you expect somebody else to feel when you hear your status? And that's why I think it's so important for people who are living with HIV to learn to love themselves and you know, uh, learn to just. I don't know, um, because I don't want to make it about, like I said, publicly sharing your status, but just living in your own truth and whatever that version is for any person living with HIV. But I know that will help because for the people around me personally, I've seen the growth. I've seen, I've even had friends now that have dated people living with HIV. And that's something they probably would have never done, but being around me, someone who, you know, walks every day and isn't crying about what someone isn't doing for me or how someone feels about me or being stuck in my status. Because a lot of people are when they're diagnosed, they, they get stuck. And it's this fear of what the world is going to think and what the world is going to say. When in reality, it's about what you think, what you're going to do next. People just, people fall in line. And that's what people do for me. When I cared about what people thought, when I cared about what people had to say about me, it was a different response than, you know, me being this public advocate and owning myself, you know. People just fall in line with what I give them. I, I would like to say, though it is not your job, 
that you will make the difference in how people view HIV because of the way that you carry yourself and because of the people that you come in contact with who will be changed by you, they then too will be the difference in how people view HIV because of your bravery, because of your openness, um, because of your advocacy, because of the way that you take a stand, um, because of the way that you're raising your child. Learning to care for ourselves is a journey, and it takes time, sometimes longer than we would have initially imagined. Our bodies evolve, our sense of self evolves, and the world around us does too, in ways that sometimes make us feel safer and more grounded, and sometimes in ways that bring us harm. That's why it's so important that we find and advocate for systems of care that protect us, people, communities, and practices that prioritize our health and our bodies. Because I was at Graven Hospital uh, waiting to get my appointment at the doctor. And I usually just be rolling people in and out of the clinic and uh, singing gospel songs out on the bench praying for folks at the lunch table, all up and down the clinic, you know, waiting on my appointment. I used to love doing that. So Mr. Jimmy saw me, the man that was working with Irie saw me out there. He said, Miss Didi, you work here? I said, no, Mr. Jimmy, I don't work here. He said, well, I got a job for you. And I said, you do? He said, yes. And Mr. Jimmy gave me a job right there in the clinic. I had my own desk and everything. I was my own boss. Because the agency had had a contract to do services there in the clinic. And so they put me at their desk. And I was right there in the front foyer. Oh, I'd never forget the first day I got there. And I got ready to open the door. I had my little briefcase and my little suit on, honey. First, I ain't never had a job as myself, Mm. as me, never. So I get ready to go in the door, and the spirit stops me and says, look across the street. And I said, look across the street. Say yeah, look across the street. And I looked across the street, and I started seeing me on that very corner, jumping in and out of cars, Mm. turning tricks. And he said, look how long it took for you to cross the street. Mm. I collapsed right there at the door. Because look how long it took for me to cross the street. Yeah, but you got there. Yes. You did it. Being Seen is produced by Harley & Company and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare. 